And you're listening to In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, Misty Farquhar chats about bisexuality forums Stand By Us. And Cheryl Overs joins us to talk about the debate about how local government intersects with sex work decriminalisation in Victoria. 3CR. Well, Stand By Us is a mostly online forum exploring bi-plus issues, commencing on Bi-Visibility Day, September 23rd. Misty Farquhar is an activist from the BiPlus Collective Australia who organises the forum and which had this week. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. We're actually doing quite a range of things this year with Stand By Us. So there's a lot of um, really lovely events for community members to connect with each other. So um, things like yoga sessions or discussions about pets and games. We've even got a cocktail, virtual cocktail night. Um, But we're also doing a few more serious things like talking about um, intergenerational experiences, uh, talking about bisexuality and polyamory, bisexuality and gender. So there's a lot of um, a lot of stuff there, I guess, for both for community and for allies to learn a lot more about bisexuality. Absolutely, and it sounds like it's a great reflection of the diversity of the bi community. Yeah, it really is, um, and certainly um, the opening event, which we're all very excited about, is um, a First Nations keynote. So um, we're we're kind of foraying into the cultural diversity as well. What's the topic you find the most interesting, and why? Um, it's a, that's a really hard question for me to answer. I'm gonna I'm, because I'm bisexual. I'm going to give you more than one. Um, the, the topic um, around the intersection of gender and sexuality is a particular interest of mine um, because I identify myself as bi and non-binary and um, my research is in that area too. So um, it's something that I'm very interested in and there's an event on the Friday morning, I think, called It's All About Pronouns um, where we've got a, an incredible panel of folk who are non-binary in all the ways. Um, and the other thing that I'm particularly interested in and involved in running the session for is um, bisexuality and polyamory. So that session is also on Friday and it's called Queering Relationships. Um, so it's talking about that intersection of, you know, non-monogamy and bisexuality. Um, and again, that one for me is, is really my lived experience. So um, I'm particularly interested in that area. It all sounds absolutely fascinating. Tell us about some of your insights about that intersection of gender and sexuality. Well, I guess from my my research, I'm a PhD researcher at the Curtin Centre for Human Rights Education, and my research was really digging into that lived experience of of that intersectionality in particular. But I found that... um, Obviously, as with any group of people, the intersectionality runs much deeper than just those two things. Um, But there does seem to be quite a connection between people who um, question the need for binaries in their sexuality. So people who, you know, gender doesn't necessarily matter to their attractions to other people also are more likely to feel as though gender doesn't matter in terms of their own identity. So, um, and that makes a lot of sense to me and that's certainly been my experience. Um, So really my research is just around exploring that and teasing it out a little bit more. Absolutely. It sounds like gender can be really used as like a limitation around sexuality, doesn't it? Absolutely. That's. I mean, as a as a bisexual person myself, that's that's what I think. I, I don't understand um, why people have rules around that. 
tell us a little bit about your insights around polyamory. First of all, define it, and then tell us about your insights in relation to the topic. Oh, my goodness. Well, see, that seems harder because um, I am an academic, but not in that area. So um, <laughs> this, my answer is purely a lived experience answer. Um, I, um, I define polyamory or non-monogamy as, as really just that, like not, not exclusively having one partner. Um, and what those partnerships may look like can vary across different people and different relationships. Um, for myself, I have two partners. Um, one of them is asexual. And so our relationship um, intimacy is largely um, intellectual. And, um, and then I have another partner who's bisexual and it, that looks more like a traditional relationship. Um, but, you know, polyamorous or non-monogamous um, relationship structures can look vastly different across different people. You know, it may be that, you know, some people have primary partners and, and some people are in uh, different arrangements where maybe their partners are also seeing each other. And um, it's, it's, a whole, it's a whole world of exploration outside of monogamy. It's interesting, isn't it? Because monogamy puts relationships, I think, under a lot of pressure and in some ways kind of sets them up to fail. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I totally agree. I just I think it's so hard for any one person to meet any other person's or like all of their needs. Um, that's that's an impossible ask. And so really, it's just about opening your mind a little bit and thinking, well, you know, like this person meets these particular needs, but maybe someone else could meet these other needs of mine. And that seems actually more natural um, to the way that we work as humans. And it really seems like, you know, that's something that the heterosexual world can really learn from the queer community because, you know, often, you know, uh, polyamorous relationships are the norm within a lot of, you know, queer communities and within a lot of queer relationships. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, possibly, uh, again, not as an academic, just as a just some guy, um, uh, possibly that's that's a function of us in the queer community having to question everything that we know about traditional relationships just to be able to express our sexuality and or gender. Um, I think it's easier for us to then question things like monogamy. What are some of the most talked about issues currently in your bisexual networks? Um, well, I, so I'm part of uh, the Bi Plus community in Perth um, in terms of community membership. And a lot of the conversations um, are about those two issues that I've said are the ones that are of most interest to me. So um, issues around um, gender diversity and issues around polyamory. Um, a lot of the people who join our Facebook group are people who are in what looks like heterosexual relationships. Um, so, you know, they're either women married to men or men married to women and um, and they're bisexual people who've sort of had that part of themselves sort of in the closet for a long time um, and now they're coming to understand their sexuality as bisexual and thinking about ways that they can explore that a little bit more. So um, that's where, I mean, I guess some of the discussions around polyamory are of interest to people. Not that necessarily that's a path that they'll go down, but it's something that people are interested in talking about. Um, and equally, so many of our members are trans or gender diverse. So um, a lot of the content that comes up in the discussion is around that as well. It sounds like a great group and it sounds like it's really empowering for its membership to be able to have those discussions. 
I think so. And I look, one of the reasons that we started the group is is uh, Duke Dow and I were feeling like we didn't have that those spaces for ourselves to have those discussions. So it's um, enormously beneficial for us um, in as much as it is for other community members, I think. What are some of your thoughts and insights on Bi Erasure? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, what bi erasure is effectively is just this belief that bisexuality doesn't exist. Um, and it's, it, I mean, it's events like this, bi visibility events that kind of prove that to be wrong. And people like me who are publicly out as bi plus, um, I think, you know, we are often erased um, both in mainstream society and in the LGBTIQA plus communities. Um, because it's difficult for people to get their heads around, I suppose. Um, it's not black and white. It's not binary. It's this weird grey area that makes people feel uncomfortable. Um, and I guess as a result of that, it makes bi plus people feeling uncomfortable too. And so, you know, we're constantly questioning our own sexuality because we're told by society that it's not quite right. Um, and that has an impact on our mental health outcomes, unfortunately. Absolutely. I mean, it seems strange, doesn't it, that the queer community would feel uncomfortable about bisexuality. Uh, do you think attitudes are improving? Uh, yeah, I have been reflecting on that quite a lot lately. I, I um, When I first started doing this kind of um, advocacy, it was probably, I don't know, six or seven years ago, and it was it was uncomfortable to even identify as bi in the LGBTIQ plus community. So um, people people would talk about it as being transphobic or, you know, or all of the usual stereotypes around promiscuity and not being able to make a decision, et cetera. Um, but since then, through a lot of work um, from a lot of people around the country, um, particularly in the last three, four years, um, there seems to be so much more awareness in Australia and so much more acceptance. And, you know, this year, which is the second year of the Stand By Us Forum, we've actually got some um, LGBTIQA plus organisations sponsoring the forum um, and getting a bit more involved in it, which is just fantastic from our perspective. 3CR. You're listening to an interview with Misty Farquhar on 3CRs in your face. You've got a great history as an activist. What are some of the biggest changes you've seen as a bisexual activist and polyamorous activist within the queer community over the years? Hmm. I, I suppose being invited to the table is one of the biggest things that I've seen. So, um, you know, organisations um, are more interested in making sure that bisexuality is represented at any discussions, whether they be about LGBTIQA plus or not. Um, that's something that, um, that has been a massive change, to be honest, because there's been this perception that, you know, bisexual people's issues within the community are really addressed by, um, you know, responses to lesbian and gay um, problems, um, when we know actually there's quite a few differences in, in the types of issues that we face. 
Um, we've even, you know, recently, I, I probably shouldn't say who it is, but high profile politicians um, are, are celebrating by Visibility Day and um, increasingly organisations, corporate organisations are celebrating by Visibility Day. And, you know, even a couple of years ago, you would never have seen that happening. So I, I think, you know, the biggest thing is probably awareness. Uh, I guess the next thing that I'd like to see is um, more um, programs that are specifically for BIPLUS people. Absolutely, and I think more funding needs to be made available in that field. <laughs> it's always about funding, isn't it? <laughs> but yes. <laughs> Misty, I was absolutely fascinated to read that you contributed to a United Nations report on bisexuality. Tell us about that. Yeah, I, I did. That was a little while ago now. Um so there's an organisation called ILGA, which is the International LGBTIQA plus um, Association, I think it stands for. Um, and a few years ago, um, Sally Goldner and I actually went to a conference in Bangkok um, that they were running and, and became a, a little bit more connected with international bi-plus activists um, who were working with ILGA. Um, and, and I guess as an academic um then people contacted me around issues in in the what they call the Oceania region. So that's Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific Islands. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I provided a report on um, bisexuality. And, and certainly, I don't have any expertise around what's happening in the Pacific Islands. So I provided a report on Australia and New Zealand, which was presented at the United Nations. Yeah. I also read that you were invited by the US government to participate in an international leaders or visitors program focusing on LGBTIQ rights. What can you tell us about that? Oh, my goodness. Um, also, that was a few years ago now, but um, it was an absolute honour. Um, so the, the US consulate in Western Australia at the time was doing a lot of work in um, LGBTIQA plus um, advocacy, which was amazing. And I happened to be working um, for a not-for-profit organisation running a program for um, young folk in regional areas that were LGBTIQA plus. Um, and, and so I was connected with them and they nominated me for this program. Um, and effectively what, what it looked like was three of us from, uh, from Australia, so a couple of guys from Sydney and I um, were flown over to the US and spent, I think it might have been two weeks, maybe three weeks, um, meeting with different organisations that were working in this space around the US. So we went to um, Washington, D.C., New York, um, San Francisco and Indianapolis because um, Indianapolis sounds weird, I know, but at the time they had just um, been through a whole process of um, religious freedom um, legislation changes and so we were interested in learning about how that had impacted the community. Um, but that was one of the most amazing things I've ever been involved in and um, so I'm so grateful to the US government for funding that to happen. Um, it, it was a real eye-opener in terms of, you know, where the US is at in, in relation to um, Australia and, you know, the, the types of issues that they have that are similar but also, you know, they've got some wildly different issues over there. Yeah, tell us about some of those wildly different issues. <laughs> well, uh, well, religious freedom is is one of those. Well, at the time, religious freedom was one of those things that I just thought, my goodness, uh, things like that wouldn't happen in Australia, um, because it seems as though 
at the at the time, it seemed as though the US was a far more religious uh, country than Australia was, and so um, the religious freedom um, laws over there were really about protecting Christians. Um, from having to engage with queer communities in ways that made them uncomfortable. Um, and that, I mean, I guess we see that sort of happening here in Australia now, which is which is kind of a little bit scary in ways. Um, but at the time, like I said, it seemed like, my goodness, that would never happen in my country. Um, yeah. And, of course, now we've got the looming religious discrimination bill uh, looking like it's going to return, you know, before the next election, or certainly it's going to be used as a political device uh, before the next election. What are your thoughts on the religious discrimination bill? Oh, gosh, it makes me so sad. Um, it, it's it's almost difficult for me to speak to. Um, my my family are religious, and so, um, you know, I, I absolutely um, support people's rights to um, their faith and um, and so it's not for me it's not about you know being anti-religion I just feel like our the laws that are potentially rolling out in Australia really do favor a particular kind of religious person so not only does it impact you know the LGBTIQA plus community in a negative way potentially it's also bad for people of other faiths it's also bad potentially for women people with disabilities um, people from different cultures so there's there's a whole lot wrapped up in terms of human rights around that legislation that goes far beyond our communities absolutely it really seems like it's being imported from you know uh the heart of the bible belt in the u.s uh which of course is indianapolis isn't it indiana's kind of the heart of of midwestern evangelicalism yeah, it's exactly the same. Yeah. Misty, Stand By Us is so exciting. It's obviously happening online. Tell us tell us about how people can register and just the format and the dates and all that, the housekeeping stuff. Yeah, yeah, sure. So we've got um, a natty little website, which is um, standbyus.com, where all of the information is for all of the events. It runs from Thursday, the 23rd of September, which is by Visibility Day, uh, until Sunday, the 26th of September. Um, and on the website, you can actually browse all of the events for each of the days. And there's links to um, the event pages and registration. Um, and we've also, this year, we've included time zones across the nation. So um, it's not just all in Eastern Standard Time. Um, so it's actually really easy to navigate. And, you know, you can come to everything or you can just choose a couple of things I would recommend coming to everything myself um, it's all free um, at, thanks to the support of a number of organizations and individuals so people can just come along and get as involved as they want to a lot of them um, a lot of them are discussions online so um, you know it's not just about listening to events like a conference might be it's you know it can be interactive Absolutely. And it's so exciting that Bi Visibility Day seems to be getting bigger and more visible every year. It, it is exciting. I love that. Misty Farquhar, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. I really appreciate it. Thanks, James. 3CR.
experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter.
star there. Well, Cheryl Overs is a long-time sex work law reform activist and advocate who's currently working at Monash University's Michael Kirby Centre for Public Health and Human Rights. Cheryl, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. What do we know about the state government's plans for local government's role in regulating a fully decriminalised sex work industry in Victoria? Well, we know what's in the discussion paper, and that's relatively broad, but it does set out some guidance about the sorts of distances there needs to be between sex businesses and other businesses. It um, it alludes to the fact that the government will um, will revise the Planning Act in order to take away the council's abilities to reject all sex businesses from their area. So we know a little bit about it, but I'm afraid we still don't know the full details and they will be decided on a council-by-council basis at some level. The CEO of the Municipal Affairs Association has written to the Department of Justice and Safety about the decriminalisation of sex work in Victoria and they said the risk of not having a statewide regulatory framework for the sex work industry is that individual councils may take differing approaches. What's your response to that? I'm a little baffled by that because, in fact, the legislative framework is statewide. Planning law applies statewide. So there will be a statewide framework, albeit one they don't like, because it's one that says that they are unable to reject sex workers completely from their area. So I don't think that makes terribly much sense. And their right to do that will have to be legislated away in the Planning Act. However, what I think they mean is that without a licensing system, they're unable to control the location of sex businesses within their area. And that's not true. They can control it. They control other businesses in that way that are a certain size. They have very little control over very small businesses. And that's what they seem to be objecting about objecting to the idea of sex workers operating pretty much cottage industries as home occupation, and that seems to worry councils. However, I really feel that we've got to be honest here and see these kinds of letters for what they are. And what these kinds of letters are is they're a defence by councillors against constituents who are going to complain on moral grounds. So, That's all been taken care of in the 
lead up to decriminalisation. Those moral grounds are not legitimate and they need to stop writing letters which try and make another issue, a a valid issue within the framework of decriminalisation where there just isn't one. And in this case, there isn't one. Councils will be able to control and sec- the sex industry in the same way as they control other industries. Yes, I thought that letter was basically, you know, all about a bit of a power grab, wanting more power, but also a recipe for the potential for fear-mongering and a scare campaign. Well, that's right. Letters like that are absolutely for show. They're not serious. And by for show, I mean they're to wave around to to constituents at some stage in the future. It's grandstanding and it's not relevant and it's not helpful. I understand there's been controversy and division about the decriminalisation of sex work uh, among some councils in Victoria, and I'm thinking of Burundara in particular. What can you tell us about that controversy? Yes, well, they did recently uh, take such a vote. But if you look at the um, the discussion, again, we come back to it is all about things which are extraneous to the issue. They're about sexual exploitation, about uh, the possibilities of residents being disturbed, the possibility of children seeing people who might be involved in some sort of sex. So all of these matters have been fully canvassed in the um, in in the run-up to decriminalisation. So, they're, again, they're pretty irrelevant kind of discussions. It's interesting. The debate reminds me a lot of the controversy the Victorian AIDS Council experienced when they were trying to set up the Positive Living Centre in the late 80s and early 90s, and councils were objecting and fear-mongering along the same kinds of lines. Oh, that's very interesting. And and that brings us to a really important issue. And that's about the difference between government responding to imaginary problems and real ones. So the imaginary problems are things like children seeing somebody who might be on their way to a sex worker, children seeing sex workers, sexual exploitation, non-consenting sex, rape, children involved in the sex industry, residents offended. All of these problems are pretty much imaginary problems. They're not problems which have emerged in other places where sex work is decriminalised. And indeed, planning law, criminal law, business law and work safe the the protections that we have in Victoria are all designed to address those issues. The criminal law and banning something fails. That's well established. And it's kind of just going over old ground for a council like Bunandara to be bringing up these issues now. It's out out of sync with what's going to happen. Are you concerned that sex workers' rights and voices and perspectives will be drowned out by stakeholders in the decriminalisation debate, stakeholders such as local government? Um, Yes, I absolutely am concerned about the concept itself of stakeholders. Whenever people are defined as stakeholders, you always know there's a problem. It is appalling to define sex workers as one stakeholder in the issue of sex workers' safety and rights. They're not a stakeholder amongst others. They are the stakeholder. We don't hear about 
stakeholders in relation, for example, to the rights of Indigenous Australians, as if somebody else can have another voice. No, that's the voice. And I think we need to abandon this concept of stakeholders completely. And the government are already, it seems to me, going down a dangerous path by holding these separate meetings of what they define as stakeholders. They've held a series of meetings with council, with social workers and doctors, with sex workers, and so they've just said the sex worker voice is one voice amongst many. That's not acceptable. So it sounds like the stakeholder engagement process, and I'm doing all of that with inverted commas, is really marginalising sex workers. I think the stakeholder process absolutely marginalises sex workers. And one of the strongest recommendations that the Michael Kirby Centre for Public Health and Human Rights made in our submission based on research in 2022, the Patton Inquiry, uh, directly addressed that issue. And we recommended that there be a full overhaul of the interface between government and sex workers. And by that, we mean not just the services that are provided, but the way in which government recognises sex workers. Sex workers don't have a union uh, for obvious reasons. It's been illegal. Sex workers' ability to join unions has been limited by a number of factors, and there's a very interesting history there. But the upshot of that is there is no single voice for sex workers in Victoria or indeed in Australia. And sex workers are extremely diverse. So some sex workers want to work on the street and are very vocal about that right. Others want to work for bosses. Others want to work independently in small home-based occupations. And others will find that their main issue is uh, violence and being protected uh, from, from crime and being able to report things to police. Others will be concerned about the role of anti-discrimination law, for example, and privacy laws that protect them from uh, incursions into privacy and indeed from discrimination by banks and financial um, institutions. So there's a broad range of interests there. There's a broad range of perspectives and needs and there is no single voice. And government can't interact with sex workers on the successfully anyway on the basis that you can just ring up, you know, dial a quote um, and, and, and the sex worker response will be there uh, uh, like a, an organised stakeholder. It doesn't work like that. And government are already, in my view, going down a very dangerous path by just defining random sex workers that they can pull in as the voice of sex workers. Sex worker advocacy certainly needs support and recognition in this state. And Every time we speak, James, I point out to you that of the millions and millions of dollars that is spent in this state every year on sex worker um, welfare and health, zero dollars goes to sex worker organisations. And that's the first thing that needs to change. You're listening to an interview with Cheryl Overs on 3CRs in your face. As a policy expert in the sex work advocacy field, you've been advocating for decriminalisation for decades. What are your tips to the Andrews government about the rollout of the decriminalisation of sex work in Victoria? The first one is to 
always refer to other similar businesses. Take out the sex and then look for another similar business. Does this business look like a hairdresser? Does this business look like a um, doctor's surgery? Does this business look like a, a shop? Sex businesses are all similar to other businesses. If people could just forget about the sex and look at the businesses, then we go um, a very long way towards solving many of the problems associated with commercial sex. So that's the first one. Another one is to assume that sex workers are a diverse population, that there's no single sex worker mindset. And the third one, which I've already mentioned, is responding to real issues, not imaginary ones. And I'll give you a really concrete example of that, James. They're talking about retaining the criminal law against soliciting in in public near schools and churches. And that's very much a, a gut reaction to an imaginary problem. The idea that once the law against uh, street soliciting goes, there'll be sort of, you know, scrums of sex workers and clients outside of school gates and, and, and offending parishioners as they're on their way to mass. That's not going to happen because it doesn't happen now. The, the, there is a law against soliciting anywhere, including in front of churches and uh, schools, and it's not used. And sex workers aren't, going, aren't um, using those places to, to solicit. So this is an imaginary problem, but it's one that appeals to people that can be used against the idea of decriminalisation. And I dare say that the government are talking about retaining that law to try and appease the Liberals who need to bring up all kinds of irrelevant arguments against decriminalisation if they are to serve a constituency that wants to see sex workers continue to be discriminated against. Absolutely. It really sounds like the government's trying to second-guess the opposition and indeed the Murdoch press's reaction to the decriminalisation of sex work. You know, my reaction to that is good luck with that. I think Fiona has done such a wonderful job. I think the Scarlet Alliance, which is the um, Australian sex worker organisation, which I actually um, helped found back in the 1980s, I think they've done a wonderful job. I don't think that um, they're going to get very far with making up crazy stories and throwing in red herrings. I'm optimistic uh, for once on that front. What do we know about the newly re-minted opposition leader Matthew Guy's position on the decriminalisation of sex workers? I'm assuming that Fiona, Fiona Patton and the Eros Foundation have reached out to him. What are your sources telling you about that dialogue? Not much. Um at all. I, I don't know very much about that. What I do know is that they're very much focusing on the numbers in the House to get the legislation through. So I'm sure that those conversations are going on. But government's pretty tight-lipped about the, that. What we do know is that Matthew Guy was planning minister for a long time. So he must understand planning issues very well. And a lot of the arguments against decriminalisation, a lot of the hysteria flags that are raised 
are actually non-starters if you understand planning law. There's a reason there's no risk of an abattoir setting up in the street in which I live in Melbourne. There's a reason that I'm not going to get a 3am closing nightclub down the road. Planning law works. So does our wonderful laws to protect workers in the workplace uh, through our WorkSafe programs here in Australia. These laws work. These laws protect people, they protect workers, and they will protect sex workers when they're allowed to. Once the criminal law is out of the way, these laws can be effective. And no one knows that better than ex-planning minister Matthew Guy. And it's interesting because the current planning minister, Richard Wynne, his Richmond electorate, has a very strong support for uh, sex workers. We saw that with the Vixen Collective campaign against Kathleen Maltzahn at the 2018 state election. Mm, yes. Well, that's right. I think Australians at this point, Victorians, uh, have got a very short fuse and are not going to be sidetracked by um, by moral panic arguments rehashed as legitimate voices in the discussion about how we move forward. One of the very interesting things I think coming out of COVID is the fact that like all other industries, the sex industry is going to be reinvented at the end of COVID. So many things have closed down and things will be opening up. So there's an extraordinarily exciting opportunity, I think, to re for the sex industry to be restarted in a way that fully uh, that fully awards sex workers the rights that they need to to, to work safely. And that's a unique that's a unique um, moment in history because in other places decriminalisation has come to an existing sex industry. But, of course, here in Victoria, not much is existing at the moment. Yes, it's, a, it's an incredibly surreal time, isn't it, uh, in all sorts of industries, but particularly for the sex industry, and it's a particularly surreal time to be talking about decriminalisation. But as you say, so many opportunities, and we need to look at it like that rather than a pessimistic way, I think. Yes, and I just saw in the newspaper today that many brothel premises, you know, brothels, the actual buildings, have come on sale. I saw this in a real estate uh, column today. So that's interesting to see that those those buildings are actually being sold. So there clearly are no plans to reopen up those large industrial-style brothels. Now, I'm not saying there's no place for large brothels. There, There is. Uh, there's a place for every form of um, workplace in the sex industry. However, the favor the, the way in which the law has favored and pushed women to women in particular towards uh, the large industrial level brothels seems to be something that has already subsided. So what's going to be replacing that? And the sex workers I'm talking to are telling me that small, uh, home occupation style um, sex work throughout the community uh, is is the way that they want to go. It's the way that they feel they can fit in best. So decriminalisation is actually a great opportunity for small business development. It absolutely is. And small business, of course, is very, very important in the sex industry. The legal regime that we have had has pushed 
uh, sex workers towards the sort of large industrialised brothels that can apply for licences. Those brothels, I'm told, are, are closing anyway. That leaves a gap. And what many sex workers are telling me is that that gap is going to be filled by much smaller, independent, small business operations for sex workers. And any amount of research shows that sex workers are less vulnerable to all kinds of exploitation and violence and so on that's been associated with the sex industry if they are in control of their own business practices. Absolutely. And we see that with so many workers, don't we, that workers are less likely to get hurt when they have some autonomy over their work. That's absolutely right, James. And I think autonomy is a real key word here. And autonomy is something that sex workers in Victoria are really anticipating and really wanting to come out of this legislation and will really get behind as things come out of COVID and as those businesses restart. Cheryl Love, it's always great to talk to you on 3CR. Thank you so much for the chat today. Thanks, James. Bye. 
man, that was Pat Benatar, and we'll catch you next week on your face. Taking us out is Marion Faithful. Intrigue.
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV, and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. Facebook.